Good morning. It is really good to be with you here. As we get ready to bring the Israelites home, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all your blessings. Father, we're very mindful right now of our youth group and all the chaperones and those who are ministering to those kids. We just pray, Father, that you'll continue to bless them as you have been this week. And Father, pray that you'll bring them back safely to us. Pray, Father, that they'll come back to us energized, that they'll be on fire for you. And Father, that they will infect us with their enthusiasm so that we can be brighter lights to the community around us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your story. Father, we thank you for the fact that we find meaning in our lives through your story. And thank you for allowing us to be a part of your story. And Father, we just pray that you will draw us closer to you and you'll draw us closer to each other this morning. And we pray this through Jesus, who is our Savior, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, so today we are going to look at the next chapter in God's ongoing story that's told in the Bible. And as we do that, we'll once more focus on how our individual stories find their purpose and their meaning in God's story. And we started this series at creation, and there we saw the world as God always intended for it to be. And we saw life the way that God always intended for it to be. It was free from guilt, it was free from shame, and it was built on perfect relationships. But then we watched paradise come crashing down as Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And because of their sin, they had to leave the garden behind. And when they left the garden behind, they entered a world that was very far from paradise. And we saw that the perfect relationships of the garden were replaced by relationships that were marked by hostility. We saw Cain kill his brother, and we saw that things continued to deteriorate until God's very good creation was described as being continuously evil. Then we saw God in his sorrow send a great purging flood, and with that flood came the hope, the hope of a new beginning, a fresh start with good and righteous Noah. But we also saw that that hope didn't last very long. And we saw the people move further and further away from paradise and further and further away from their God. And then we saw God once more act for the benefit of his people, this time through Abraham. And Abraham accepted God's missional call to be a light to all the nations. And in Abraham's relationship with God, we learned that we too can be flawed and yet still faithful to our call our call from God to be lights to our dark world. And we also learned that God is always faithful to his promises. And we saw God at work keeping his promises to Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob and through his great-grandson Joseph, who was lifted up by God to become second in command in Egypt so that he could bless all the nations and he could preserve Abraham's family in the midst of a terrible famine. And then we saw that Abraham's descendants went from being honored guests in Egypt to enslaved threats to Egypt. And we saw God, the great I Am, respond to the cries of his broken and trapped people. And he called Moses to accept the mission to set God's people free. And last week we saw Moses accept that rescue mission. And we saw the rescue story culminate in the Passover story as the Israelites followed God's instructions and made sacrifice and spread blood and ate a meal. And we saw God pass over them as he brought death to Egyptian homes. We saw that Pharaoh finally relented. 
We saw Abraham's descendants, some two million strong, loaded down now with Egyptian gold and Egyptian silver. We saw them leave and they were free at last. And that's where today we step back into God's story. We step into a story as God's people are leaving Egypt and they're on their way back to Canaan. Back to the promised land. Back to the land that was promised to Abraham. And this time they're going back, not as aliens in a foreign land, but to claim the land as their very own. Just as God had promised Abraham. And as we look at the story, we have to think, what could possibly go wrong? They have the numbers, they're two million strong. They have wealth, the Egyptians have taken care of that. They have leadership, and they have God on their side. But as we'll see in this chapter of God's story, it proves to be easier to take the people out of Egypt than it is to take Egypt out of the people. And it doesn't take long at all to get our first hint that the journey back to Canaan isn't going to go very smoothly. So the Israelites are camped beside the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has yet another change of heart. And Pharaoh decides to gather all of his army together and pursue the Israelites, and he wants to bring back his nation's slave labor force. Let's read what happens, Exodus 14 and verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And I am did fight for them. And he led them through the water on dry ground. And he swallowed up the Egyptian army in the sea. And reading from verse 31. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord. And they put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. So now we're on our way to Canaan, right? Surely this latest demonstration of God's power and faithfulness will be enough for the people to put their complete trust and their complete faith in God. But it didn't work out that way. Exodus 15 and verse 22. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, What are we to drink? Then in Exodus 16, verse 2, In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If we had only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then in Exodus 17, verse 1, There was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Kind of reminds me of a road trip with our kids. Some of the questions you get. You know, are we there yet? Are we ever going to eat? You mean we drove all the way out here just to see 
this. This is pretty lame. But it shouldn't really surprise us what's going on here. Because I think we need to understand that after hundreds of years and after generations of enslavement, the fear and grumbling that comes from the Israelites really isn't a surprise. It really isn't a surprise because they have hundreds of years of history telling them that their only value comes through their menial labor for the benefit of other people. It shouldn't come as a surprise because they have generations of history telling them that they're at the mercy of their master's whims and that no one really cares about them. And even though over the last several months they've repeatedly seen God's mighty hand working for their benefit, it's becoming increasingly evident that it's going to take some time to remove the slave mentality from their heads. And so to begin removing the slave mentality from the Israelites' heads, God decides it's time to stop the trip to Canaan. It's time to pull over. It's time to park for a while. So he parks the Israelites for a year at Mount Sinai. And the reason that he brought them to Mount Sinai was so that they could receive Torah, so they could receive God's teachings, so they could receive God's laws, his regulations. And he brought them to the mountain so they could build a tabernacle. A tabernacle for God as his sanctuary, as his dwelling place. The tabernacle was a place where God could be found and where he would be worshipped. And it was constructed so that the Israelites would know that God was always with them, always in their midst. And God brought them to the mountain so they could find their identity in worship of God. And they could find their identity in covenant with God. They were brought to the mountain to learn that their identity was in their God who rescued them from slavery. Their identity was not in their past as slaves. But once again, things got off to a rather shaky start. Moses went up on the mountain to receive Torah from God. And even as Moses is receiving prohibitions about having other gods and about worshiping idols, the slave mentality of the Israelites once more surfaced. We read this in Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, he was gone for 40 days, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So Aaron had them bring all their gold jewelry. He made it into a golden calf, and the people proclaimed that calf as God. And Aaron declared that they were going to have a festival, and a wild party broke out. God sees what's going on, and he speaks to Moses in Exodus 32, 9, and says, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses pleaded with God and he turned aside God's wrath and he did it by reminding God of his promises. Verse 12, Moses says to God, turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants all over this land, I promise them. And it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented 
and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses hurried down the mountain. He saw what was happening. He broke the two stone tablets. He confronted Aaron and he confronted the people. He brought God's punishment to the people. And then he sought God's forgiveness for the sins of the people. And God did forgive. And God reaffirmed his promise of a land to call their own. So God provided new stone tablets with his laws written on them. And he continued to instruct Moses about what kind of God he is. And what kind of people his people are to be. And the importance of these events is still celebrated by the Jews today during the festival that's called Pentecost. It's a Jewish festival that celebrates the moment that Torah was given to the Israelites. Pentecost celebrates a new beginning. It celebrates a new identity for Israel. And it's celebrated even today. See, God isn't just giving them a bunch of rules. God isn't giving them just a bunch of regulations. He's teaching them who they are. He's teaching them that they aren't Egyptian slaves. They are beings created in his very own image. So God tells Moses his story. We find that story in what we call Genesis. And then Moses uses that story to educate the people about who they were created to be. He also educates them about how he has brought them to this point in their history. And more importantly, why he has brought them to this point in their history. He tells them what he has done and he tells them what he is going to do. So they spend a year parked at Mount Sinai. And they're there for instruction. They're there for worship. They're there for reprogramming. And sometimes as we read through Exodus and as we read through Leviticus and as we read through Numbers, we're overwhelmed by the sheer volume and the detail of the rules and the regulations that God gave Israel at the mountain. But we shouldn't allow that to let us lose sight of the purpose of all these rules, the purpose of the law, the purpose of Torah. See, it's a call from God to his people to worship him. It's a call to his people to follow him. It's a call to his people to obey him. And even though those rules were first written in stone, that's not where the rules were supposed to remain, just written on stone. See, God's preparing his people for a battle. And the primary battle that God is concerned about is the battle for their hearts. And the only way that he can win the battle of their hearts is by revealing himself to them. And he reveals himself to them through his mighty acts. And he reveals himself to them through his promises and through his covenants. But he also reveals himself to them through his law, through his regulations. His law teaches them who he is by telling them what matters most to him. And God does that because he knows that if they come to truly know him, they truly know him, the stone tablets will no longer be necessary because his laws will be written on their hearts. It'll become a part of them. And when it becomes a part of them, God's laws become a part of them, then they grasp their identity as being creatures made in God's image. So the year on the mountain wasn't intended to try to create a bunch of rule followers. 
What it was intended to do was take the first steps towards developing a nation of God followers. We might put God's intentions for his people this way. When you know me, I'll write my laws on your hearts, which is where I want my law to be. See, God is working to bring his people back into relationship with him so that they will follow his laws because they follow him. And they follow him because they know him and because they love him. And once the law is written on their hearts, once they know God, they won't have to have rules that are written in stone because they won't want to do anything that displeases their God, the God they know and the God they love. And once God and God alone has their hearts, once he owns their hearts, they not only won't want to do anything that displeases him, they won't be able to do that because he has taken possession of their hearts. Their hearts are his. And God desperately wants possession of their hearts before they take possession of the promised land. So after this year of preparation, after the tabernacle's been completed, the Israelites set off once more for Canaan. And unfortunately, once more, warning signs pop up en route. There's more grumbling about food. Miriam and Aaron provoke a revolt against Moses. But God still brings them to the edge of Canaan. God still brings them to the edge of the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. And as we read this, we think, surely now, surely the now the promise of land will be fulfilled. So 12 spies, one from each tribe, are selected and they're sent into Canaan. And they come back with an amazing report about the land that they have seen. We're now in Numbers, chapter 13 and verse 27. This is the report that they give. So we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, as they display some incredibly large grapes and other fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified, and they're very large And in verse 30 we read, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Skipping ahead to chapter 14. That night... All the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader And go back to Egypt, back to slavery. And then we see Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before the people. And Caleb and Joshua tear their clothes. And Caleb and Joshua demonstrate in their actions that God does have their hearts. God has their hearts because they boldly stood before the mob and they said, He will lead us. They said, He will give it to us. 
They said, he will swallow the people of Canaan up. They said, the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. But those two brave voices were drowned out by the mob. A mob that showed by their reaction to the spies' report that they weren't ready for Canaan. And they weren't ready for Canaan because they still had a slave mentality. They weren't ready for Canaan because God didn't have their hearts. God, once more, is angry and once more his wrath is turned by Moses. And he doesn't destroy the mob, but he does send them back to the desert for 40 years of wandering. And he sends them back to the desert with a new promise. This promise is that no one over the age of 20, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, will survive to enter the promised land. See, the promise of land is now for their children. It's not for them. And wander they do. And grumble they do. But it isn't just a time of aimless wandering. See, these 40 years are used by God as a time of spiritual formation for his people. A time of spiritual discipline for his people. In the desert, God gives them a 40-year lesson on complete dependence on I am. Complete dependence on God. God is after their hearts. We read this as Moses talks to them at the end of that 40 years in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2. Moses tells them, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. And he did it to humble you. And he did it to test you in order to know what was in your heart. In order to know whether or not you would keep his commands. God's after their hearts. And he's after their hearts because he knows that competition for their hearts is all around them. See, God's big concern is the people are preparing to go into Canaan. Is the power of darkness that surrounds the Israelites. The power of darkness that's seen in the corrupting power of the gods of the nations that now possess Canaan. God's deeply concerned about that. And God repeatedly warns his people to be careful. Be careful. Don't let me slip out of your hearts and don't allow other gods in. So then, there's a new leader. Joshua, faithful Joshua. So he's preparing to lead the Israelites into Canaan. And as he does so, we have many unanswered questions. Are the Israelites now ready for the land? Does God have their hearts now? Will the Israelites be lights to the nation? Or will they be chameleons and blend in with the nations and blend in? With their gods. And what follows is a chapter of God's story that often makes us very uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable because it's full of death and it's full of destruction. It makes us uncomfortable because of what happens at the hands of the Israelites. 
See, because God is on the side of Israel, the fights that take place don't really seem very fair. And conquest after conquest ends with the complete destruction of cities and the death of all the citizens. Men, women, and children. And I think that the reason why the stories of Canaan's conquest make us so uncomfortable is because to us they don't seem very Christ-like. But we have to be very careful and not lose sight of the fact that sin brings wrath from God. Sin brings wrath from God. God cannot and will not tolerate sin. See, what we read about here as the people take over Canaan is the flip side of what makes God's light so beautiful. And God's light is so beautiful because God's light is absolutely pure light. And evil cannot exist with God's absolutely pure light. And because evil can't exist with God's light, Israel became the avenging sword in Canaan to drive out evil. That's their purpose, to drive out evil in Canaan. And the reason that God has them do that is so that he and he alone would rule the land. But more importantly, so he and he alone would have the people's hearts. So these stories are brutal and these stories are harsh. But the wisdom of God's actions in Canaan as he seeks to drive out evil before the Israelites, the wisdom in his actions is going to be seen in the tragedy of Israel's future. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the next chapter in God's story. So let's bring this story home and let's see what this chapter in God's story means for us today. And I think the first thing that we need to recognize is that Jesus, our Jesus, our Savior, fulfilled the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And he fulfilled it by making God known. He fulfilled it by bringing God in the flesh to earth to be fully known by his people. And now that we know God, now that we know God through Jesus Christ, we're the people who don't want to displease God. We don't want to displease the God who we know, the God who we love. And now that God through Jesus Christ has taken possession of our hearts, we not only don't want to displease God, we can't bear the thought of displeasing Him. Because our hearts belong to him. He's taken possession of our hearts. And we're also struck by how God continued to work through Pentecost. Think about Acts chapter 2, what happened at Pentecost there. See, God worked through Pentecost there to bring new beginnings and new identities at that Pentecost. It was during Pentecost that God brought a new beginning to the church. He gave a new beginning and a new identity to his people. A new identity to the people who are redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice, who now have God's word written on their hearts. We also need to recognize that God is still in the light-giving business. And his people are still called on to bring light to the darkness in the world that's around them. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, we read this. I write you a new command. 
Its truth is seen in Jesus and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. See, God's light expresses itself through Jesus Christ. And God's light expresses itself through our love for each other. So how do we know that God has our hearts? Because we love each other. How do other people know that God has our hearts? Because we love each other. They see our love for each other. And that's how we bring God's light. That's how we bring Jesus' light to the people who are around us. It's through love. And finally, we need to recognize that spiritual formation and spiritual discipline is still the way to prepare for the promised land. God is still working on us. God is still after our hearts He's still seeking dependence in us on the great I am, complete dependence. So as we end, I just want to ask a few questions. Won't you give your heart completely to God? Won't you open up your heart and allow him to write on your heart? Won't you allow God to lead you to the promised land. So this morning, if Jesus doesn't have your heart, won't you make today your Pentecost? Won't you make today your new beginning? Won't you make today your day of new identity? And you can do that by joining with Jesus in baptism, by being born again, Literally having a new identity through Jesus Christ. So that you can rise up as a new creature creature with your heart firmly in God's hands. If you'd like to give your heart to God, if you'd like to give your heart to Jesus, won't you let us know this morning? You can let us know in a couple of different ways. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing actually two different songs, a few verses from each. During that song, you can walk to the front and let us know that you're ready to give your heart to Jesus. Or if you're more comfortable doing so, there's a more private way that you can do that. You can make your way to the back, ask for directions to room 104. In that room, a couple of our elders will be in there, a couple of godly men who would love to talk to you about their Savior, Jesus Christ. But whatever your needs are, won't you let us know while we stand up, while we sing this song together.